today is, as uh, many of you may know, some of you may not know, today is what we call in the Christian calendar Palm Sunday, and it marks the triumphal entry, and we call it the triumphal entry, and I, in fact, I, I, I really just don't know if Jesus looked at it from, from the eyes of saying it's a triumphal entry. In fact, as Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives, some of us were just there about a month ago, it, Jesus was coming down the Mount of Olives, he stops at one point, and he just bitterly weeps over Jerusalem because the, the people... Uh, the, the Jewish people, he's offered himself over and over for three and a half years. He's offered them, himself to them to be their Messiah, to be their Savior, and they keep rejecting him. And so the triumphal entry marks this, this last offering, as it were, of Jesus offering himself to, to the Jewish people saying, one last time. But you know, there's, there's an amazing blessing that comes out of that. You and I are, are Gentiles, if we don't have Jewish history, uh, we, we are what the Bible calls Gentiles, we're non-Jews. Anybody who is not a Jew is a Gentile, and as a result of that, you and I have been grafted in to the family of faith, and that's what we're going to begin to talk about here for the next couple of weeks. In fact, I think this is a great opportunity today to launch into, kind of do a secondary launch into a new series. Um, Three weeks ago was my last time to talk with you, and we, we did a series, or just a small sermon there, talking about how we're all designed and intended to be created and made in the image of Christ. Th- think about that just for a second. You and I, if you and I profess to follow Christ, our lives should look like Jesus' life. Now think about that. Does, does our lives always look like Jesus' life? I know mine doesn't. I know that there's times that I definitely need much more of Jesus in my life and much less of me. Well, I want to talk about that over the next five weeks or so. And in fact, I want to maybe adjust or, or maybe even bust what our idea of the Christian life is. Uh, I've decided to call this series, and it's kind of a bizarre title for this series, but I, I think it really fits, and I'll explain why as, as we go through the series, the excruciating life of the Christian. That doesn't sound very marketable. In fact, Pastor Marcus, is, as um, we were talking about this series and everything, and I said, I, I got the idea that I want for this series, and I said, the excruciating life of the Christian, he just looked at me, he said, boy, that doesn't sound very attractive. I'm like, that's the point! The point is, is that the Christian life is designed to be something different, and we'll talk about this as we're going through, but this word excruciating means out of the cross, and we'll talk about this as we're going along. How do you and I know that we're the beneficiary of life through Jesus? Think about that question for for a second. What I'm really asking in that question is, how do you know, to use churchy terms, that you're saved? Saved from what? Well, according to the Scriptures, all of us are sinful, and we were, as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve, all the way back in Genesis 3, thousands and thousands of years ago, we are all, all of humanity is destined for hell destined for hell. You might think, well, wait a second, I'm a pretty good person. It's not about how good you are. 
It's about this sin nature that has been bred into all of us, and even the most, most wonderful and good people could be headed to hell. It's all about being born through the person of Jesus Christ, being, as Jesus told Nicodemus, being, do you remember the terms Jesus used? Born again. And I know that these are terms that are tossed about in our society and our culture, and I think at times I'm afraid they've caused a little bit more confusion than they have help. And I think at times that even, even the best of Christians still just don't quite have the best of grasps on how do, we, how do we come to a place in our life where I know that I'm saved. I know that I know that I know, I know in my knower that I am saved. Well, that's kind of what I want to talk about in this series. How do you know that you are truly the beneficiary of new life through Jesus Christ? And to answer these things, we're going to look at some of the fundamental answers to the questions over the next month or so. And I call these fundamentals. These are essentials. You, you have to be able as a Christian to know these things, to, to know what your life in Christ looks like, to know what your, your beneficiary life in Jesus Christ looks like. You, you have to ask a question, why a cross? Because this week, we're going to celebrate what we have come to call in Christian tradition Good Friday, right? And what happens on Good Friday? What happened on Good Friday, right? What happened on Good Friday? Jesus died on a cross. So we need to say or ask the question, that's what we're going to ask today. Why a cross? Why was a cross absolutely essential for you and I to have Christian faith? We also want to ask next week, which is really fitting because it's what we call Easter, and I would prefer to call it um, what Leviticus, Leviticus calls it and what the Jewish people have called it for thousands of years, first fruits, the festival of first fruits. And we have to ask the question, why a resurrection? Why is it crucial that Jesus was resurrected for you and I to be the beneficiaries of new life. If there was no resurrection, if there was no cross, there is no Christianity. Then we have to ask a, a few further questions. You might think, well, it stops there, and it doesn't stop there. You see, Jesus, after he was resurrected and he came back and he was alive again, he was physically dead and he physically came back to life. Where is he now? Why can't you and I go and hang out with him like we do with our friends? You have to ask the question, why the ascension? You see, according to the Gospels, according to the book of Acts, Jesus ascended into heaven. In fact, right now, he is at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he's interceding for your and my behalf. That when we sin, and when we ask for forgiveness, Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf to God the Father, and he says, remember, Dad, I've covered them with my blood. We can't even stop there at the ascension. We have to say, so what happens then in Acts with this thing that we have come to call Pentecost? Why is Pentecost so crucial to the Christian life? Why, why must we? know about these things. And then I just kind of want to 
finish this series with a simple question and asking, so what now? So what's next? Because really, at the end of the day, you and I are probably asking the most pragmatic of questions, what's next or what now? And so that's where we're going. That's my map for this series. And when you think about how people in general talk about the Christian life, what do they say? Can you, can you think for a second? When people talk about the Christian life or Christians in general, what do you think that they say? By the way, uh, inside of your bulletin, if you're not familiar with my habits, um, there's a, a, a white handout. It's a single-page handout. On the one side of it is uh, some blanks. If you like to follow along and want to write down some answers that will be up here on, on the screen in just a little bit, that might help you follow along a little bit. But then I also like to give you something to kind of bite your teeth into throughout the course of the week and throughout the course of a series. And just want to challenge you, I have a series memory verse there that can help you begin to to study and memorize the Word of God a little bit better. And then also, I think that there's times that folks want to talk about God with their families, particularly after they've left uh, church on a Sunday. Maybe they want to have roast pastor for lunch, but maybe they want to talk about the message a little bit. And so, um, one of the things that I try to provide for you is a uh, thing that I just call table talk, and it's taking the, the message a little bit deeper and asking a couple of discussion starter questions uh, for you and for your family and, and, and for your friends. Oftentimes, the first thing here, oftentimes, I, I got to say this, I think that the Christian life is wrongly being sold today by so many as life with benefits. You know what, do you get what I'm saying there? I think oftentimes when I hear the, the Christian message being sold, and maybe the sold is maybe a really bad terminology for it, but when I hear it being told, I, I almost hear it being told all the time of this life with benefits. And if you want the best life possible, by golly, you gotta have the Christian life. Oh, how about these things? Have you heard these things? Do you wanna be a good person? Become a Christian. Christians are good people with great morals. But the, the problem is, is, well, I hope that that's true. The problem is, is Christian, Christianity is not about morality. Christianity is not about being a good person. In, in years past, I, uh, Jamie and I at a church years ago, um, <clears throat> we, we had kind of adopted this, this one young teenager into our house uh, an awful lot because his, his home circumstances just were, were not good at all. And um, we would regularly have him over for meals. We took him to church. We regularly... And I remember talking to his mom one day, and, and his mom said, well, I'm so glad that you're taking my son to church because church was good for me when I was a kid. And I thought, boy, you've just really missed all this stuff what church is about. Church isn't about being good. Church isn't about trying to be philanthropic. Church is about so much more. The Christian life is about so much more. And if you think that church is just about making you good, boy, you've missed the point. Uh, How about this? If you want to be successful, you got to be a Christian. 
boy, I hear this being sold so often today. It's being sold, by the way, in books. It's being sold on, on TV by some of these TV pastors. The largest church in the United States today um, on a weekend has over 52,000 people that attend it. And one of, the, one of the, the regular messages that's being taught is if you really, really want to, to see more in your life, you've got to be a Christian. If you want to see more success in your life, if you want to have more wealth in your life, if you want to have more of these good experiences in your life, you've got to become a Christian. And the Christian story is not about receiving more wealth. The Christian story is not about receiving more success, at least according to the world standards. The Christian story isn't about any of those things. God may bless Christians, and God does bless Christians in many, many different ways, but it's not about the wealth, it's not about the health, it's not about the the finances, it's not about being defined as successful in terms of the world, it's about being found, by the way, according to God, successful. And you know how God defines success? Faithful. Being faithful to Him. Or, or how about this? You want to have good health? Boy, you got to ask a Christian to pray for you. Or, or better yet, become a Christian and, and you'll have good health. Or, or, or how about this? Boy, if you're not healthy, it's probably because you're not praying hard enough. Or if you're not healthy, it's probably because you have sin in your life. And you may not hear those things, but it's being taught out there by all kinds of churches. And you know what that does? It adds all sorts of confusion to what the true, real gospel, the real message of Jesus Christ is all about. It's no wonder that we have confused Christian communities all over our globe. Do you want opportunities for more stuff of this world? Just talk to God. That's what He wants for your life. There's a theological statement to that, and, and I don't know how you, how you effectively um, spell it, but it's, <laughs> the Bible doesn't say any of those things. And so, what does it say? I think that it says that the Christian life is born out of God. What, ended, what ends up happening, by the way, with all of these wrong ideas what ends up happening with all these wrong ideas is the outcomes of these false, wrong, heretical ideas about God. They produce illusions about the nature of God and the character of God. They produce, they produce false ideas about the nature of God, who God is, and the character of God, what God rewards and what we're to imitate, because remember, the thrust of this is that we're to be found in the image of Christ. So we have the job and the opportunity to discover, to mine from the Scriptures, what is God really like. What ends up happening then, and I see it, and you, and you probably see it as well, is when people build up these false ideas about the nature and the character of God in their lives, false expectations of God produces dissatisfaction. I mean, think about it this way. If I believe that God wants me to be wealthy because that's what I'm being taught, 
and then I pray towards those ends, and I don't become wealthy, what's going to happen? I'm going to wonder what's wrong with me. I'm going to wonder what's wrong with my relationship with God, and ultimately, it has opportunity to produce dissatisfaction for what I believe is the Christian life. And it also produces an inability to fully live the Christian life as God has designed it and intended it. Because we, we end up in the pursuits of all the wrong things. If we're pursuing the wealth, if we're pursuing the success, if we're pursuing the health, if we're pursuing, it, we begin to think that God is all those things and He's not. Boy, we're chasing after a false God. You know what a wrong idea of God is called according to the, first John, the book of 1 John in the, your New Testament? Do you know what it's called? It's called idolatry. When, when, you, when you have a false idea of who God is and you begin to live and act based upon those false ideas, you're not worshiping God for who He is. You're worshiping God for who you want Him to be. Have you ever met somebody who, who you ask them a little bit about God uh, and they give you all these ideas and in your gut you think, man, that just doesn't line up with the scriptures? And then you say, well, how did you come up with that idea? How did you arrive at the conclusion that God is like that? And they say, well, that's just what I think. That's just what I think God is like. You don't have to guess at what God is like because God tells us exactly what he's like. We, we just got to f- discover it in the scriptures. False expectations of God produces dissatisfaction and inability to fully live the Christian life as God intended it. And, and the reality is, the reality of the Christian life that you and I should pursue is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, come and die. Do you know, do you know what the cross bids us? The reality of the Christian life is that Jesus bids you and I to come and die. Now, that doesn't sound very attractive, does it? That's what the cross that we wear around our neck, that's what the cross that we, that we hang on the, the wall of our homes, or sometimes they're on doormats, or they're on business cards, or they're on the TV, or on the computer screen. When we see that cross, the cross bids us to come and die. Do you know that the cross was such a symbol of shame and, and excruciating pain for hundreds of years that the Christian church never adopted the cross as as its symbol until about 300 A.D. Well, a little after 300 A.D. For hundreds of years, people knew because people were still being crucified. People knew the shame that that cross represented. But yet, that's what Jesus tells us that we're to pick up and that we are to follow after him. Let me kind of give you a story about that. In fact, if you have your Bible with you, let me invite you to open your Bible. Matthew chapter 16 is where I would like to be with you, and I'd like to just give you a little bit of context for what's happening. Jesus has just finished taking his disciples, all 12 of, of, of his disciples, from the Galilee region, right around the Sea of Galilee, 
up to this place that's in northern Israel. Um, it's about a three-day journey on foot. So in Jesus' day, he, he would have taken his disciples on a three-day journey, and he only has in mind to ask them one single question. He takes them to this place called Caesarea Philippi because in the pagan world, in the Roman world, people went to Caesarea Philippi to declare who their God was. They would take their entire family there, they would take an idol, and they would put it up in the niches that were in, in this rock cliff, and they would say, family, this is our God. And that's why Jesus asks one single question of his disciples, who do you say that I am? And what we have come to call this time, as we've come to call this time, Peter's confession of Christ. Because that's when, Jesus, or that's when Peter says, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the one who's anointed by God, who's been promised in the line of David that would come and, and save us. And Jesus says, listen, I tell you that you didn't come up with that in your own mind, that God himself has pulled back the curtain so that he could show you personally that truth. By the way, when people come to faith in Jesus Christ today, that's still the methodology that God works. We don't come through it by thinking through it ourselves. We come to faith when God pulls back the curtains and through the power of the Holy Spirit communicates to us that God truly is who he says he is, that Jesus truly was who he said he was, and that the only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. That's what happens in Caesarea Philippi. Following that, Jesus is getting ready to, to go up to Mount Hermon, which is this a moment where, uh, which is just a little north of Caesarea Philippi, and uh, this is that point where he's going to have what you and I have come to call the transfiguration. He's going to peel back his flesh, and he's going to say, ah, oh, and then his, his uh, disciples are going to see him, and they're going to recognize who, who he truly is, Okay. This happens about six months before the crucifixion. So Peter's confession of who Jesus was, that he was truly the Son of God, doesn't happen early in Jesus' ministry. It happens about six months before Jesus is crucified. And then Jesus tucks in this special teaching. He prophesies about the way that he's going to die and also about what his followers are going to have to do in order to follow him fully. So here's where we have Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. I have up on the screen, if you don't have it with you, the English Standard Version, and you can read along up on the screen. Let me encourage you to read it right out of your own Bible. Verse 21 from the time that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised, okay? He's saying these things six months, at least six months ahead of time. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, that, you should never, that this should never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Now, that's a thing for Jesus to say, isn't it? Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is a moment where Jesus was greatly tempted because of what, Jesus, or what Peter said to him. But remember, Satan, according to what we see here, was using Peter as an instrument to tempt Jesus. Verse 24 then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and, what's it say? 
Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Six months before Jesus goes to the cross, the thing that we're going to celebrate here this coming Friday, Jesus says, listen, if anyone is ever going to follow after me, they need to come and die. Wow. Now that doesn't sound like the type of faith that I oftentimes being here, uh, heard as being sold as, as oh, you, to become a Christian, that will make you a good person. Oh, when you become a Christian, this happens. Oh, this will happen, and this will happen. And Oh, God wants your best life for you, and all these kind of wonderful things going on in health and wealth and prosperity and blah, 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 blah. Come and die. That sounds like something completely different. And, and when you and I probably just normally, at least when I normally think about the Christian life, I don't, I don't oftentimes think about the blood and the pain and the mockery and the shame and all the stuff that happened with the cross. But that is the nature of the Christian life. The nature of the Christian life. We should not be surprised when we're mocked. We should not be surprised when we suffer all kinds of persecution from non-Christian governmental systems. Just like Rome persecuted the Christians of the first century, governments today are going to persecute Christians. We shouldn't be surprised by these things. Jesus told us that this was going to be here. And the elements of suffering, the elements of the cross are essential and necessary components that gave birth to the Christian life, that still give birth to the Christian life. The Christ follower today still will experience suffering and pain and persecution and mockery and all kinds of things. We should not be surprised. Let me, let me kind of give you a few scriptures from the Old Testament that foretold all of these things. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6 says this, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. That's a prophecy of, of Jesus. I, Isaiah 52, verse 14, <clears throat> as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance in the form beyond that of the children of mankind. That's a, that's a prophecy about how brutally 
brutally marred in the human form Jesus was before the crucifixion. Let me give you one of my favorites out of Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 12. By the way, these are important prophecies as we're thinking about this coming week. Who has believed and he has... Who has believed what he has heard from us? Verse 1 of Isaiah 53. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look in him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Jesus didn't go around with a halo around his head and didn't have all kinds of things that are depicted in paintings today. There was just, he was just a normal guy. He looked like a normal person. He was despised and rejected, verse 3, by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As for one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and, he, and we esteemed him not, we being humans. Surely he was born, our, he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. He was, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened his mouth not, like a lamb that was led to a slaughter, like sheep that was before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression, the judgment, he was taken away. As for this generation who, who considered that he was cut off uh, or cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with a wicked with a rich man in his death. That's a prophecy of being um, laid in a rich man's tomb. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. Then, or when the soul makes an offering for guilt, he, ha, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many. That's a prophecy of uh, his garments being torn and in. Um, being um, uh, gambled for. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because they pour out his death, uh, his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many to make intercessions for the transgressors. What is that all about? It's about the pain and the suffering, the price that was paid for you and I, and that's what we should see when we see the cross. Let me kind of give you a couple things so that we can understand some of this. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was taken 
um, during the middle of the night to a false trial. By the way, that was illegal for the Jews to do, to have that kind of a, of a trial in the middle of the night at Caiaphas's house. They were afraid that Jesus was such a high value and high risk prisoner that they put him in the middle of a pit. Some of us uh, that went to Israel were in that very pit about a month ago where Jesus would have been lowered down and they kept him there over the middle of the night and Peter denied Jesus three times over the course of the night. And then uh, the next day, he was paraded from here and there as he was taken before leaders. And, and even, the, even the greatest of the leaders found that Jesus was, was to be innocent. And yet the people said, free Barabbas, free Barabbas, and crucify him, and crucify him. That's what led Jesus wrongly, falsely to the cross. He had no sins. There was nothing wrong with him. Yet it was for our sins, for our iniquity, for everything bad that we ever could do or think or even imagine. Jesus died for those sins. And then he was led out of the city on this, this street that is now called the Via Della Rosa, the way of suffering. Before they did that, though, let me tell you what they did. They pulled out his beard. And for those of you who can grow beards, I'm not big enough yet to grow a beard. I haven't grown up yet. Can you imagine the pain of your beard being pulled out? And then you know what they did? To try to satisfy and to try to appease the, the Jewish people, because the leaders had already found, you know what, this guy, he, he, he may be crazy in their mind, but he hasn't done anything deserving of death. You know what they did? They, they flogged him and they beat him. And in the Roman world, uh, a Roman lashing was 40 minus 1. Paul was beat several times in this way. It was believed and known by the Romans that if you had 40 lashings, that you would probably die. And so it was actually 40 minus one. And this is exactly what would have been used. It's, it's oftentimes called, referred to as a cat of nine tails or a Roman scourging whip. Now what I don't have, what the Romans used, on top of this, there, there would be shards of iron and nails that would be bent and tied at the end of this and then bone and glass. And the idea behind that was, is when this was swung, it would stick in the flesh of the back and the soldier would have to rip it out. And this happened 39 times to Jesus. But it didn't stop there. By the way, that's why the prophecy of Isaiah says that he was so marred. Can you imagine the meat on your back and what that would look like? So they didn't, the mockery and the shame didn't stop there. They wanted to call him the king of Jews because that's what he was proclaiming to be. And so what they did is they took a crown of thorns like this and they took it and they would take rods and they would push it as far down on the scalp as it possibly could go to where these thorns were literally digging into the scalp. And the mockery and the shame didn't stop there. They took a royal robe and they put it around his back. And what happens, and for those of us who knows, you know, when you wrongly get the Band-Aid in the wrong position and it's all over the, the, the rawest part, they put this royal robe that's cloth and they put it on his back and guess what happens when you take that off? It takes flesh and pain with it. And this is how they present Jesus before the crowd. 
and they beat him, and they flog him, and they mar him, but it doesn't end there. You see, and all this suffering and pain is happening. Why? Because of me. Because of you. Because God loves us so much that he wants us to be reunited with him forever. And so when the crowd finally says, crucify him, and there's pilots left with no other options but to crucify him, they take Roman crucifixion nails. Like this, these are... These are replicas of Roman crucifixion nails. And unlike the many pictures that you and I see, they were placed in the wrists. And they were placed in the wrists on a cross beam, and the, the arms would be put down just a little bit, and the, the legs would be crossed, and the one that would go into um, the heels is a little bit longer than these. And they drove a nail straight through the wrist into the board, and then what they did is when they got him fitted on the cross, they bent his knees like this. So to get a breath, you have to come up. But imagine the only way that you can come up is by pushing down on the nail and pulling up with the pain of the nails nailed to the cross. Why a cross? We needed Jesus to suffer. Now that sounds sick, doesn't it? Our sins required justice. Our sins required pain. In fact, there's a word that was used, and this word never even existed until the cross was used for a brief 300 years in time of, of uh, human history. Okay, and that's spotted. The cross was only probably used for about 60 years during the Roman Empire. The word is something that you and I have probably used before, and we talk about it when we use this word, we, we talk about this word related to pain. The word is excruciating. Have you ever said, oh, this is excruciating? That word comes from crucifixions. Do you see even the cross kind of stuck in the spelling of that word? But what it really means is, all that it literally means is out of the cross. You and I, the Christian life, comes out of the cross. We are born out of the cross. There was no other torture in the human world that was more painful and more drawn out than the cross. Typically, a person who was crucified was on the cross for several days because of the way that the pain. Now imagine, on the cross, Jesus is taking a breath, and he's only on the cross for a matter of hours, taking a breath, breath and, and his back is completely already raw from the 39 lashings and the, the robe being pour, uh, pulled off and he still has that crown of mockery placed on him. There's a sign above him written in, written in several languages, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, right? And every time he takes a breath to come up, his back is rubbing against that, that board. 
Oh, and I also forgot to mention that he carried his cross. Now listen, whether or not he carried a cross beam or the entire cross itself, we really don't know. If he carried the entire cross, a Roman cross was about 300 pounds. The cross beam itself was about 100 pounds. So Jesus is forced to carry that, and then a man named Simon, who was from a town called Cyrene, ends up helping him part of the way. Brutal, sick stuff. And, and, you know, this is kind of stuff that we think, oh, boy, we need to filter through. This is, this is how your Christian life was born. This is how we're still born today, by the way, is we're, we're born through excruciating pain. We are born again through excruciating pain. We're born out of the cross. The torture and the horror of that cross was used intentionally by the Romans to try to deter anybody from uh, uh, going against Rome. It was used as capital punishment. The message of the Bible is that no one is good. According to the book of Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We needed Jesus to suffer because if he didn't suffer, guess who was going to suffer? You and I. We, we would suffer excruciating, physical, tangible, conscious pain forever in hell. Upon Jesus was laid our iniquities. Upon Jesus was laid the pain that you and I rightly deserved. Upon him, all that stuff that you and I should have borne for all eternity came upon him. Why upon him? Because he was the son of God and he was the only one capable of doing it. If it weren't for that cross, if it weren't for, as we'll talk about next week, the resurrection and, and the ascension and Pentecost and all of these things, the Christian life wouldn't exist today. Do you remember Jesus' instructions to his followers in Matthew 16, 24? We read that a little earlier. If you want to follow after me, you have to do what? Take up your cross and follow me. Now that doesn't sound like how the Christian life is oftentimes being sold today, is it? It doesn't sound very sellable. Hey, you want to suffer? Join us. You want misery? Join us. You want persecution? Join us. Yet those are the very elements and the things that we're told to expect as Christians. Suffering and pain and persecution. Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5, don't worry. Because they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. But take heart because I have overcome this world. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8.36 that we as Christians are like sheep who are headed towards slaughter. We are, we are living sacrifices for Jesus. The sheep that Paul is referring to, the sheep that's oftentimes referred to in the scriptures are sacrificial sheep. You and I, our lives 
are to be an offering, a sacrifice for God. Everything that we do should be oriented back towards God, His kingdom, and we can only do it through the way of the cross, through the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering. The path, the genuine, the path um, that the genuine Christian follower must take is the path of the cross. Jesus bids us to come and die. When the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit awakens our unbelief to belief, we must begin to crucify our sinful desires. Isn't that hard? Because let, let me ask you this. Sin is fun. Someone may say, oh, sin's not fun. Oh, yes, it is. Don't lie. Sin, sin is fun. That's why sin is so enticing. That's why the world is filled with so much sin. Because it feeds the carnal nature, that fleshly part of who we are. But we're told we're to deny ourselves. We're to crucify that fleshly part of ourselves and to follow him through obedience. And It's funny because Jesus says that his burden is not heavy. Yet he, he tells us to take up the cross and follow me, but yet he says, hey, don't worry, it's not heavy. Wait a second, that sounds sick. You know, one of the key indicators of discovering if we truly want to pursue Jesus is, is following Jesus a burden for you. Think about this. Is following Jesus a burden for you? If it is, perhaps you're focusing too much on the works aspects. Because when we love someone, when we're passionately in love with somebody and that we love them with our whole heart, soul, and mind, listen, we do really difficult things, but you know, they might be difficult, but at the end of the day, we still do it because we love them. Right? Parents, isn't that what we do with our children? We do some of the most difficult things at times, but it's frustrating at times, but we love them so much, that's why we do it. And it doesn't become a real burden. Following Jesus, knowing that you are truly a part of the family of God is a lot like that. That even though that there is pain, and even though there is persecution, even though there is mockery, even though there are trials and tribulations and difficulties and all kinds of things, still we love him and still we'll follow him. Remember that old hymn, yet none go with me, still I will follow? The driving motivation behind that is love. The way of the cross is the path of the Christian. Jesus took our sins at the cross. So to answer the question of today's entire message, why a cross? I mean, why, why is a cross necessary? Why couldn't Jesus just die in another way? Why couldn't he, as, as Romans were executed, Romans were executed, they were beheaded. That's why the Apostle Paul was beheaded. He was a Roman citizen. Why couldn't he just be beheaded? 
quick and done and over with. Jesus knew that the excruciating pain was coming. That's why he sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. Why a cross? Because it was a necessary sacrifice to purchase you and I from the clutches of Satan and hell. The most excruciating type of pain that could be experienced in human history was designed for our Savior in our place. In our place. Why a cross? Because it was the necessary sacrifice to purchase you and I from the clutches of Satan and hell. So let me kind of wrap up a few things. Let me hopefully make sense a little bit of some of this. The cross creates opportunity to be declared righteous before God. Listen, Jesus' sacrifice was efficient for everyone or sufficient for everyone, yet only efficient or effective for people who accept that sacrifice. There's some churches out there today that preach that, oh, God's love is so great for all humanity. No, he wouldn't send anyone to hell. Well, God's perfect love also commands a perfect justice. And God's perfect justice will be held whether or not we accept the justice of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross or we want to pay that for ourselves. That's up to us. You and I have the opportunity to be declared righteous if we accept the right holy gift of Jesus on the cross. We use this word in, in uh, theology, we call it atonement. Jesus' blood was necessary to cover our sins. In fact, that's the next thing. Suffering of Jesus was part of the justice of God. Jesus needed to suffer. And it was absolutely horrible suffering. That's what we call in theology substitutionary atonement. Jesus was the substitute for us. He died in our place. Lastly, Jesus died in our place, but he rose so that you and I would be the first of many. There's a Jewish festival that takes place. It's called First Fruits. Uh, There's a Jewish festival coming up here in two days called Passover. Jesus was the Passover lamb. There was a, a, a lamb sacrifice that was made throughout all of Israel at that time, and that would be the, the sin sacrifice for that family. Well, Jesus become our, became our lamb. That's why we call him, by the way, the lamb of God. He was the lamb that was sacrificed in our place, just like the Passover lamb that the Jews will celebrate here in, in uh, two days. And then Jesus rose again on what the Jews call first fruits. Now, we've Romanized it and Westernized it, and we call it Easter. I'm not a big fan of the word Easter because Easter is really a modern name for, for a pagan god, which was Ishtar. And I'm just not a big fan of that. I'm more of a fan of the term first fruits. Next Sunday, what you and I are going to celebrate is the festival of first fruits. And I'll explain more next Sunday is why that is so significant to our salvation. But to kind of wrap up a few things today, I want to remember the suffering of Jesus with you. 
And this is this time that we call communion. In fact, uh, Pastor Mark and Marcus, where are you at? In fact, if the worship team could come up. This is this time that we, we call communion. <clears throat> Kent, I believe, Kent is helping us wherever Kent is at as well. <clears throat> Jesus celebrated this, this Passover meal. We oftentimes call it the Last Supper with, with his disciples. Now listen, this is something that isn't new at all to, to the Jews. His disciples are, are used to celebrating for their whole life this Passover meal. Jesus does something special with this very last meal. He changes it, and he institutes what we call the new covenant. He says, listen, it's by my body that's going to be broken for you, and by my blood that's going to be shed for you, that you're going to have new life. Christian life is born the same way today. It has been ever since Jesus established it for thousands of years ago. And, and what we call this time in the United Brethren Church is we call it an ordinance. Jesus ordered us. It's our marching orders. Do this and do it in remembrance of me. In fact, as often as you do it, you're going to remember me because I commanded you to do this. And so today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, let me invite you to share communion with us. If, if not, listen, let me, let me just kind of share with you. We're warned in the scriptures that if, if we're not believers and we participate in this, it's, it's really mockery because we're saying that this is something special to us and if we're not a Christian, it's really not special to us. But for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, man, this is great because we're remembering the sacrifice, the price that was paid to buy us back. That's what the word redeems means. Jesus redeemed us, just like you redeem a coupon at the store. You redeem it for a certain amount of money towards whatever purchase it was. Jesus redeemed us and he paid the price in full. You and I don't have to suffer. I just want to pray before we serve this today, and I'll give a couple uh, instructions about this in just a minute, but I want to pray that maybe you haven't come to that place in your life to where you're saying, you know what, I need to be born out of the cross. I need to experience this Christian life, and I, I get that it is not about good, being good or moral or ethical or all these other things. It's not about works. It's about accepting this free, gracious gift of Jesus Christ, and maybe that's where you're at today, and let me invite you to pray it, and then share for the very first time your first communion. And so would you, would you bow this morning?